Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to read the first eight verses. It says, yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. The theme of the book of Isaiah continues. Remember, it began way back in chapter 40. The Lord has set us free. The Lord is the bondage breaker. The Lord is the one who grants us, if you will, the ability to overcome the pain, the persecutions, the trials, the addictions, the problems. We are set free. We are set free by the greatness of his person in chapter 40. We are set free by the greatness of his purposes in chapter 41. We are set free by the greatness of his pardon in chapters 42 and 43. And now, again, we continue the theme. We are set free by the promises of God as they're outlined in chapters 44 and and 45. How valuable is your freedom in Christ? The only way that you actually begin to value, understand, and appreciate freedom is when your freedom is taken away from you. When the prohibitions and the restrictions, you never really truly understand and appreciate freedom, your freedom to associate, your freedom to move about, your freedom to come and go as you please until those freedoms are taken away. We live in a great country with multiple freedoms. You can go to the church of your choice. You can open or close your Bible. You can associate with whom you want. You can go to a grocery store. You can buy from a multitude of different products. But your freedom isn't the same as everyone else's freedom. In New Hampshire, their state motto is live free or die. I I love that motto. Live free or die. 
As a matter of fact, the writer in the New Testament, Paul, says that we have been set free in Christ. And once again, the focus is freedom. God's people are set free by God's promise. God, you'll notice in verses one through eight, once again promises that he will help his people. God's people are set free when they know and understand just how foolish, just how empty, just how worthless, just how useless it is to worship false gods, man-made idols. That's what we're going to see in verses 9 through 20. And then God's people experience a remarkable freedom when they return to the Lord, when they renew their hope, when they come back to the land of God's promises. And so in verse 1, there's a cry for help. Lord, we need your help. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Once again, the Lord calls the nation, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. The nation is, in God's mind, not divided, but rather united. Now, again, remember, I keep bringing you back to the historical circumstances. It's the 7th century B.C., the Assyrians have already come and taken the northern tribes away. In about 150 years, the Babylonian army is going to come to Judah and Jerusalem, destroy the capital, and take them into bondage. Understand something. When Isaiah is writing these words, Jerusalem is intact. The temple is intact. Everything is going as it should be going. This is interesting because sometimes when you're reading the Bible and, and you're hearing about different things in the Bible and you're, you're reading about prophecy and you're reading about the future and you're reading about things getting worse and worse and more and more troublesome and you, and you read about, about the movement politically and socially and all of the stuff that's going to take place in the future, how a coalition of nations are going to emerge, how an antichrist is going to, to come on the scene and how the world is going to experience trial and tribulation like it's never experienced before. But everything's pretty okay with you. I mean, you get to go to the grocery store and there's still money in the bank account and things don't seem that bad. And so you wonder why God keeps giving you promises of his presence, of hope, of comfort, a provision for you in a time of need, because God knows the truth that your time of need is going to come. There will come a, a dark time. There will come a time of deep sorrow and pain and deprivation, and you'll need the presence of the Lord. And so once again, remember, 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 as the children of Israel are reading the words of Isaiah, as they are, as they find themselves in the future, in a future where now Isaiah is the past and they're reading these words about their captivity and they're going to need hope for the future. And, and so the, the Lord calls them my servant whom I've chosen that God's plans and purposes remain. And then in verse 2, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now that expression, Jeshurun, might be unfamiliar to you. In the Hebrew language, the meaning of the word is upright. 
when the scholars who translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek in the second century B.C., they translated this word into the Greek word, which means beloved. It probably in this context means righteous nation. And so when the Lord says, I made you, I formed you from the womb, I suspect, again, he's speaking of of the time that Jacob and Esau were formed inside of of Jacob's womb, that God had a plan and a purpose, that God's plans and purposes have always been known to God. God always knew that he was going to call Abraham. God always knew that he was going to call Isaac. God always knew that he was going to call Jacob. And God always knew that, that he was going to call you. He had a plan for me right from the beginning, even though that beginning may have stumbled in your life. Even though if you had the, the, the sovereign ability, if you were the God of the universe and you could figure out where you could be born and whom you could be born to and the kinds of circumstances that you could live under, maybe you wouldn't have picked those circumstances for yourself. But guess what? God has called you. God has a plan for you. God has always been ministering and working in your life. And so when he calls Israel and Jacob Jeshurun, he declares them righteous. But here's the big problem. How do you declare something or someone righteous when it is not? Remember, they're suffering from their rebellion and disobedience. Because they've mocked God or denied God or some of them have embraced idolatry. And that's why they found themselves in captivity. And the same could be true of every single Christian. You find yourself in circumstances where you know God loves you. You know that Jesus died for your sin. But you wake up morning after morning and you, you experience the same feelings and you think the same thoughts. And every once in a while, in moments of rebellion and disobedience, you think and do things that just simply aren't right. And then you read in the New Testament where it says that you've been declared righteous. And you go, oh God, how is that possible? I'm a wicked, dirty, rotten sinner. It's true, you are a dirty, wicked, rotten, gravy-sucking pig sinner. But God's declared you righteous. The gavel of God has come down from heaven and you've been declared righteous, accepted, in the beloved, how is that possible? The Lord assures his people by reminding them they are his people. He will help them. And do you realize that in the pain and in the darkness, in that very difficult moment in your life, God wants to remind you. You belong to him. And he will help you. And by the way. Sometimes we experience overwhelming feelings of rejection. We experience overwhelming feelings that the government can't help and that our family can't help and our church can't even help. But God wants you to know that he will help you. Do you understand what's happening in the first two verses? The Lord is communicating his special interest in his captive people. And I want you to understand about that special interest. Some of you maybe heard in the news a couple of days ago that a person celebrating the new year 
fired a high-powered rifle. The, the trajectory of the bullet traveled some 600 yards. It went through this paper-thin house. It struck a woman in the head. It went all the way through her head and then went into the side of an 11-year-old girl, and both of them died. And you might feel bad about that. And you might declare what a shame that is. But if it was your mother and your daughter, if that was your child that had been shot in that circumstances, it puts it in a, in a whole do, new different light. Part of the point, believe it or not, that the Lord is making with his righteous nation as he finds them in captivity is that he has a special interest in them. This isn't a detached or philosophical or theological interest. This isn't just something in order to satisfy God's curiosity. He has a special interest in this nation. And believe it or not, that's exactly what the New Testament relates to the believer, that God has a special interest in you. I know that sometimes you wake up in a world with six plus billion people in a country with 300 plus million people in a front range with about four million people. And you suspect. So what does God care about me? And the Lord wants you to know that. Every moment when you wake up and every thing that you do every day, you are never, ever away from God's pronounced and specific care. You are his special interest. There's a clue that's given to us in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Later, the prophet Isaiah will write concerning the Lord. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And the text answers just like you. Surely they may forget. Is it possible that a mother could forget her child? It's possible. It typically doesn't happen. It's possible. But here's what the Lord says in Isaiah 49, 15. Yet I will not forget you. I'm in a foreign place. In a dark place. In an empty place. And everything that I knew and loved is gone. God, are you still there? I won't forget you. And look what it says in verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. One of the things I want you to note about this verse where it says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. The requisite, the requirement seems to be for the person who wants satisfaction, all you have to do is ask. Hey, what do I need to get some of that living water? Ask. Hey, what do I need? I'm in a dry place and an empty place. I'm in a dark place. I'm in a lonely place. I want some help. What do I need in order to get some help? Just ask. Have you heard that famous saying, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink? You can make it drink. You take a big salt tablet and you brush that horse's teeth with the salt tablet and you put it in the gums and you put it on its tongue and you dry up its mouth. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to be desperate for water. It will drink. 
And sometimes you need to come to that place of darkness, of emptiness, of loneliness. You've got to come to a place where you no longer are satisfied with your own self-sufficiency and you're ready to cry out to God. And he says, I will pour my spirit on your descendants. I suspect he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And I suspect that in part that prophecy comes true in Acts chapter 2 where the Lord pours out his spirit on the men and women who are gathered in an upper room after Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Lord reminds his people that he is strong enough to do something about their captivity and that he's able to deal with their problem of persistent sin. I'm strong enough to help you and I'm strong enough to deal with that persistent problem of sin. So how can God deliver people? How can he save them? How can he forgive them without destroying justice in the process? The answer is found in the New Testament. God will send his son. He will satisfy his own sense of justice because every sin does have to be dealt with. Every sin in your life has to be dealt with. And here's the promise of the New Testament, and that's why it's called the good news in the gospel. God promises to deal with your sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And then the Lord will have to transform you. I've told you over and over again, the biggest prohibition, the greatest hindrance to me coming to Christ was when people would talk to me about Jesus, that I would always say in my own heart, you don't understand, I'm not a good person. I know you're not a good person. No, no, I'm a wicked person. I'm an evil person. I'm the kind of person that your parents warn you about not associating with. That's the kind of person that God wants to save and and transform. The Lord says, I will transform you. I can't wake up in the morning and pray. I can't wake up in the morning and read my Bible. I can't wake up in the morning and go into my study. I can't even prepare this message. Unless the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, inside of me, molds me, shapes me, changes me, makes me different. Now, for those of you who really know me, like my wife, she can attest to just how wicked I am. But guess what? If it wasn't for the presence of Jesus, if it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, you would, the only way you would be able to find me, if I were still alive, would be to visit me in jail. One Bible writer wrote, Divine delight breathes through the promises that follow. The thirsty are satisfied. The seed of Jacob to be blessed by the outpouring of the Spirit with resulting national and spiritual fertility. The idea is God's Holy Spirit is the change agent. The Holy Spirit 
comes upon the person. The grace of God and the spirit of God unite to transform the sinner into the saint. But it is the necessity of the presence of the Holy Spirit in order for you to walk a walk and talk the talk that's going to be satisfying to God. In John chapter 14, verse 16, we discover that the Holy Spirit is sent to comfort us. Jesus says, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The idea being the very presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you during those dark and depressive moments will come inside of you and be with you. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul writes, he says, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. When you come to know Christ, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, bearing witness, reminding you that the Bible is true and that the promises of God are true and that the circumstances of your life are only for a moment and that you are joint heirs with God and Christ if you suffer with him. And now all of a sudden you you understand something. That in pain and in sorrow and in suffering, you have two opportunities. The first opportunity is to identify with Jesus. And the second opportunity is to rely on the resources of God for your life, just like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's ministry isn't restricted to comfort. The Holy Spirit guides the believer, teaches the believer, instructs the believer. In John 16, 13, it says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit will lead you and the Holy Spirit will guide you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things to spiritual things, that the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, as you open up your Bible and you begin to read the words, they come to life and they change you. And then the Holy Spirit convicts the believer and the unbeliever of sin. Convicts the believer and the unbeliever of a lack of holiness and righteousness. Jesus explains in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin. Because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Here's the idea. I don't see Jesus. I read in the Bible that there's a Jesus. I read in the Bible that he lived this remarkable life. I read in the Bible that they took him and that they killed him. I read in the Bible that he rose from the dead, but I've never seen him. How can I be sure he was ever here? Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The idea being... For the person who doesn't believe, for the person who rejects, the Holy Spirit's conviction comes. 
And it results in judgment. The Holy Spirit indwells us, leads us, guides us, gives us life. But guess what? The Holy Spirit also gives us power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, when Jesus said those words, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 44. And when he says, you shall be my witness, you know what he's quoting? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. Just turn your page. Go back one chapter. Look what it says. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses are fond of quoting that particular verse and identifying with that particular verse. But do you remember what a witness is? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. A witness is a person who knows the facts, is willing to testify to the facts and has a reputation for honesty. You'll you'll notice something when Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. It doesn't say, oh, you'll preach sermons about me. You'll write books about me. You'll do religious things for me. There seems to be an important sense in which God wants you to testify to the reality of what it means to have forgiveness and a right relationship with God in Christ. So the work of the Spirit is to enable God's people to do what they cannot do for themselves. And so the moment that you cry out, you say, I can't do this. All the angels applaud. Finally, you got it. Finally. Finally, you get it. This is good. This is your right. God agrees with you. And heaven agrees with you. You can't do it. But Jesus in you. And the Holy Spirit in you. Molding, shaping, transforming you. The work of the Spirit is to enable God's people to do what they can't do for themselves. We can't live lives that are righteous. We can't live holy lives, just lives. We can't live as a powerful witness apart from the Spirit of God. No wonder we're told in the Bible to keep on keeping on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not as complicated as you might think. Remember earlier when it says to the thirsty, I will give water. Do you realize that having the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life is as simple as asking? Do you remember how you received Christ as your savior? You ask by faith. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life. And then he did. That's exactly the same way that you receive the Holy Spirit. By faith. Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill me to overflowing so that I can have the power to think different thoughts and say different words and live a different kind of life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, it says if a child 
asks for a gift from a parent, if he asks for an egg, do, do you give him a scorpion? If you, as wicked parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to him or her that asks? It really is that simple. And so, we are not to manipulate God. We're to submit to Him. We're to not be filled with false religion and religious ritual. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And look what it says in verse 4. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. The idea is a supernatural fruitfulness. In in verse 5 it says, One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, The Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. You have to understand something. This verse, verse 5, is a prediction of the effects upon the Gentiles of Israel's restoration. Remember, remember what I keep telling you about the historical context. The historical context is there is going to be a group of Jewish people who are going to be displaced from Judah and Jerusalem. They're going to be taken into Babylon. They're going to be in captivity. And in captivity, there's going to be people who say, you're not a real Jew. You weren't born in Judea. You weren't born in the Galilee. You weren't born in any of the occupied territories. You're not a real Jew unless you were born And Israel. They're born in captivity. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Have you ever been in a situation where perhaps you weren't raised in a Christian family? You weren't raised with a godly heritage. You weren't raised in circumstances that could be termed righteous by any stretch of the imagination. But then you became a Christian, and someone asked you, what are you? And you said, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I belong to the Lord. I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. The idea being, I am a Jew. I am a member of the covenant community and will write with his hand. Actually, literally in the Hebrew language, it could also be translated I will write by handwriting. The idea is published. The idea is I am going to write out on a piece of paper so that I can make both a public and a lasting declaration of my relationship to the true and the living God. That's the idea. So that even if they're in captivity, even if their family's home is gone and the temple is gone, they can say, I I'm, I belong to the Lord. And by the way, when I was reading this and preparing this message, I couldn't help but thinking about, about places where this tape goes that, you, that aren't just limited to this church. Every once in a while, a tape will go into a prison. Every once in a while, a tape will go into a hospital room. Every once in a while, a tape will go into a psychiatric facility. And so in a prison, in a hospital room, in a psychiatric facility, in order to be a Christian, do you have to show up at a church? Or can you belong to the Lord in a dark place, in a lonely place, in a restricted place? And even there, they're able to say, I belong to the Lord. 
the Lord promises physical and spiritual blessing. And then look at verse six. It says, thus says the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last beside me. There is no God for the third time. For the third time, the Lord promises or pledges redemption by his title redeemer. Again, if you've forgotten, remember in chapter 41, verse 14, where it says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Turn a couple more pages. Chapter 43, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. The Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. The idea being, I am the Redeemer. I am the Redeemer. I am the Redeemer. Here's the idea. The Redeemer is the person who buys you back. Out of your captivity and out of your sin. You're bought as a pledge. He says, I am the first. And I am the last. This title is claimed by God three times in the book of Isaiah. Here, remember in chapter 41, verse 4, if you missed it, in 41, verse 4, 4 it says, Who has performed it and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. I am the Lord. Am the first. And with the last, I am he. I am the first and the last in 41.4. I am the first and the last here. I am the first and the last in 48.12. So, so how many firsts and last do you suppose there are? Yeah, you're exactly right. There's only one. There, there, there can't be two firsts and lasts. But you know what's interesting? Jesus Christ claims to be the first and the last three times. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 17, there he says, I am the first and the last. In chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. In Revelation, chapter 22, verse 13, he says, I am the first and the last. Well, wait a minute, we have a problem here. How can Jehovah God, the Redeemer of Israel, the one who sets the captives free, be the first and the last? And Jesus is also the first and the last. We only have two choices. Either Jesus is God, or you have two firsts and two lasts. All creation, all existence owes itself to the supreme being who is absolutely unique. This particular verse, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last beside me. There is no God. It destroys every false religion and every false philosophy that has ever been fabricated as it stands against the true and the living God. This is one of the most, if not the most powerful verse when you're talking With your Mormon friends. According to Latter-day Saint theology, as Adam was, God became. They teach a kind of evolutionary Godhead that there is this spiritual transformation that takes place. 
that human beings can evolve into higher forms of life. They themselves becoming an omnipotent being. But this verse squelches that besides me, there is no God. And there are several attributes where where there are several passages of Scripture where the attributes of God are shared by Jesus. Only God can be worshipped, but Jesus is worshipped. Only God is the first and last, but Jesus is the first and the last. This verse, again, carries with it the idea that the Savior Jesus, who has redeemed us, purchased us, bought us out of the marketplace of sin, is the first and the last. Jesus gave us the beginning. He is the source of all things. He is the reason why we exist. God's unique power, God's glory, God's attributes are marvelous. But here's the real wonder. It isn't that there is only one first and last. There's only one being who who is unique. There is only one uncreated creator. Part of the point of this passage, if you don't see it, if you don't get it, you never will. The part of the point of this passage is Isaiah isn't giving us a theological dissertation. He isn't giving us a philosophical treatise. He wants you to come to grips that this omnipotent, powerful, uncreated, stand-alone God has a relationship with you. That's the powerful point. It's this group of people whose lives have been ruined, whose livelihood has been taken away, who find their homes gone and their temple destroyed and their hopes shattered. But this is the God who thinks about them all the time, every moment of every day as his plan unfolds for them. And that's the kind of Savior that you have. That's the kind of Jesus Savior. That's, he, he isn't the kind of Savior that you just show up at church or you just simply read about it in the Bible. He walks with you and he has friendship with you and fellowship with you. That's the amazing thing that the uncreated eternal God stoops to fulfill his plans and purposes in someone exactly like you. How amazing is that? God reveals himself in the context of poor, helpless, captive, suffering, insignificant people. Isn't that amazing? And look what it says in verse 7. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Now he's going to blast the idolaters again. Who can proclaim as I do? Buddha? Confucius? Who is there who knows the beginning from the end? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. He's basically saying, is there any God like me who has created all things, who knows the beginning from the end? So Isaiah continues to blast idolatry, the false God's failure to explain the meaning of the past, to predict the future. Another element is produced. Idols, complete 
an utter failure to interfere with God's plans and God's purposes. And the idol's complete and utter failure to save people. So people have their false gods and they have their false theology and they have their false religion and they have their false philosophy. They have all of these things and he challenges them. Which God, which philosophy, which thing can explain the meaning of the past and give significance to the present and to the future? And then in verse 48, do not fear nor be afraid. The reason why... He says that, remember, 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 it isn't a philosophical diatribe. It isn't a theological treatise. This isn't a letter trying to get you to philosophically or theologically compel you to believe in God. This is written to people who are scared. They're frightened. And you will never, ever understand what these words mean. Do not fear nor be afraid until you've ever experienced a terrifying moment where the darkness overwhelms you and the fear invades you and it envelops you because you think that nothing that you say or nothing you do can ever get you to that place where you have a right relationship with God again. Isn't it interesting that over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is constantly saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Have I not told you from the time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Isn't that interesting? Remember who he's writing to. A future group of people who have been devastated, hurting people, broken people, captive people. Isaiah is attempting to convince them, perhaps apathetic people, perhaps discouraged people, perhaps people who have lost all hope in themselves. You have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to turn. Remember even Jesus with his disciples, when Jesus said that particularly difficult thing, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. And remember, many of the people abandoned Jesus and he looked at his own disciples and he said, are you going to leave me too?" And Peter's response, where shall we go? For only you have the words of life. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. Remember what the rock is. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. It's a metaphor, if you will, of that which cannot be moved. The rock in the Bible speaks of strength and protection. And so contrast the rock of ages, this rock, the true and the living God, the uncreated creator, the eternal one who knows the beginning from the end, who is strong enough to save, who knows all things. And what do the people of this earth have to cling to? Think about it. You've said it maybe hundreds of times. Do you remember when you became a Christian and then all of a sudden you looked around to a lost and a dying world and you said, what do these people, how do these people survive? 
How do they stand the death of a child? How do they stand the murder of a loved one? How do they go through their life when the diagnosis is cancer? How do they survive in this broken and wicked world? What do people have to cling to? False religion? False philosophy? Entertainment? Falsely called science? Well, you know, in the beginning, mass was an infinite microscopic point that just blew up and everything you see is what you see. And then through a series of gaseous evolutionary processes, heavier and heavier metals descended out further and further until a certain star coalesced and threw off material forming the earth. And then the periodic table came into existence. And then you went from mud to man. Don't you feel great about yourself now? Here's the idea. Every other rock is really not a rock. It's a worthless piece of trash. And the people who trust them, they come to nothing. Look what it says in verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. And so now Isaiah launches into a tirade against idolatry. In verse 10, who would form a God or mold an image? And I'm going to read down to verse 20. Who would form a God in verse 10, a God or a mold, an image that profits him nothing? Verse 11, surely all his companions would be ashamed and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water in his faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one with the chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and makes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and rain and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor understand. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, 
Well, I've burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This tirade against idolatry, by the way, just from a historical standpoint, Israel was constantly in problem with idolatry. When they are finally delivered from Babylon and they return to the land of Israel, idolatry is no longer a problem. But when when he launches into this tirade against idolatry, he basically points out true believers know the cause and the cures for idolatry. There are three causes that are mentioned. Number one, people worship idols out of spiritual blindness. Number two, people worship idols because they lack sense. As my friend Tom Stipus is fond of saying, sin makes you stupid. For whatever reason, in blindness and stupidity, it is it is absolutely unbelievable what people will believe when you reject the truth. You'll embrace almost anything. And number three, people worship false gods or idols because they're deceived. That's what it says in verse 20. Thinking they have the blessing and the approval of their false god, they try to nourish their minds and souls on something that can never satisfy. Hence, in verse 20, when it says, He feeds on ashes. Do you know what it's like? Some of you do. Some of you remember. Do you know what it's like to reject the gospel and believe in something and you want it so much to be true, but it is not true. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no reconciliation with the Father. When you put your life in the hands of entertainment, when you put your hands in the life life of science falsely called, when you put your hands in the life of some man-made theology or some man-made philosophy, And you go to bed at night and there's the nagging suspicion in the back of your mind that you could die and you could walk into a Christless eternity. There's something inside of you that says heaven, I think, is real and that hell is certainly real. And then you go, no, no. But you live in constant fear. In verse 9, when it says, those who make an image, all of them are useless. All their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. I wish I had a piece of wood that I could just show to you and go, you know, it's like a Gumby doll or a piece of clay. Hello, I'm Gumby. That's not real. You're, You're talking. It's not that piece of clay that's talking. You're talking. Wood and clay do not talk. The people who fabricate false images, their gods are nothing. It's an invention. It's a fabrication. The question Isaiah is really asking is, how can something, and this is important, how can something made by humans, invented by humans, save humans? I'll build a Volkswagen. 
inexpensive transportation has saved all of humanity. I love Volkswagens. I drive a Volkswagen. But it won't save you from your sin. How can something made by humans, invented by humans, save humans? The answer that Isaiah gives, can't. Man-made philosophy cannot save you. Man-made religion cannot save you. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Verse 10 is a rhetorical question. Again, because of kindness and sensitivity, the right answer is only a stupid idiot. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? The right answer is a person who has no sense would, would do that. Why would a sane person do that? In verse 11, surely all of his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The idea was, whose idea was this anyway? What were we thinking when we took a piece of wood, we bore out a couple of eyes, we formed a nose and a mouth, and we said, this is our God, we will worship it. What were we thinking? That's the point. Verse 12, the blacksmith with the tongs works one with coals, fashions it with hammers, and works the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The blacksmith, here is the idea. He's a mere man. His tools are made by man. He himself is only a man. He gets tired. He gets hungry. Now think about it. Here is a man who gets tired and he gets hungry and he creates out of a piece of wood something. He goes, Make me strong and satisfy me. Come on. I'm waiting. Can a piece of wood or a piece of metal satisfy your hunger and make you strong? The answer is no. In verse 13, the craftsman stretch out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and he makes it like the figure of a man. The reason why he makes it like a figure of a man is because that's all he can imagine. He can only imagine a God or a goddess that is like him according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. Human beings think human thoughts and they create gods who are made in their own image and likeness. And so the real God, the true God, the God who occupies eternity, the self-existent God who reveals himself, of course, you can't know him. Well, I don't understand God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I know you don't. Because human beings didn't make it up. If you were going to make up a religion, would you make up one that you can't understand? In Isaiah 44:14, he cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles and, and bakes bread. Here's the, he's talking about the ludicrousness of it. You take a tree, you chop it down, half of it you use for firewood, the other half you, you, you 
You carve it into an image and you fall down and worship it. Verse 16, he burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. Hey, yeah, let's get the fire going and we'll make dinner. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself, says, oh, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. Imagine at Christmas or New Year's Day, you see your wife prostrate in front of the oven, worshiping the oven. Oh, oven. You who give me food. Now you would say, that's stupid. And in verse 19, and no one considers in his heart. Nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And and shall I, I make the rest of it an abomination? By the way, that word abomination is very, very interesting. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? How could you not know the true and the living God? That's the question. The ultimate seriousness of paganism and the consequences are seen in verses 19 through 20. God God hates the thing that reduces human beings to nothing, that destroys their ability to reason and see. And it's not hyperbole when God calls the idols an abomination. Let me tell you, that word is translated in the NIV, detestable. In the Old Testament, an abomination, the word abomination in the Hebrew is toebah. It is a word that describes a violation of God's created order. It's, It's used... To describe a created thing that that when you use a created thing in such a way that you violate its character, you take something and you, you use it in a way that it was never intended to be used. If you take a tree and you carve it into an idol and you worship it, God didn't make trees for you to worship it. God didn't make trees so that you could forge it into a club and beat someone over the head. God never intended carbon and sulfur to be ground together and mixed into an explosive device in order to blow people up. When you take something that God has made a part of creation and you manipulate it in such a way to use it to destroy the very things that God honors and loves, that is an abomination. That's the idea. And look what it says in verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. The temptation, the temptation, the reoccurring temptation when you're hurt and you're afraid and you're alone is to believe that God doesn't care. And that you've been left high and dry. But it's not true. And look what it says in verse 22. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. And like a cloud your sins. How is that possible? When that's all I can think about. When that's all that the devil reminds me of. My rebellion, my disobedience, my failure, 
my refusal to do what God tells me to do. To, I, I find myself in a place of captivity far away from home, maybe involved in something that I had no business being involved in, but I cry out to God because I'm thirsty and needy. And look what the Lord says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me for I have redeemed you. How did you do that? How did you do that? How could you just make it go away? Remember what Jesus is? He is the Redeemer. There's a reason why He's the Savior. God knows, God knows that his plan and his purpose for Israel is going to be accomplished. Remember, he is going to rescue them. He is going to bring them back to the land. History is going to unfold. A Messiah is going to come. He is going to live the life that you couldn't live. He's going to die on the cross for your sins. He is going to rise from the dead. He is going to die for you. He is going to embrace Everything that needs to be embraced so that you can experience forgiveness and wholeness and wellness in Christ. Do you, don't you understand? People in the Old Testament were saved exactly the same way as in the New Testament. By grace. Through faith. In the promise of God. Look what it says. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Why would you continue to live in bondage? Why would you continue to live in addiction to pornography? Why would you continue to live in sexual addiction? Why would you continue to live in drug and alcohol addiction? Why would you continue to live in captivity? Why would you continue to live estranged from God? Why would you do that? Return to me. Return to me for I have redeemed you. I already forgave you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Now Isaiah calls for the people to rejoice because God has accomplished all of the promises that he said he would accomplish. And you typically don't celebrate until after the victory is won. But in God's eye, the victory is won. It has already been accomplished when Jesus died on the cross, when he spread his arms and he said to his father, to Telestai, it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Look what it says in verse 24. And he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things. Who stretches out the heavens all alone. If you don't count Joseph Smith, who is with me. No, that's not what it says. Look what it says. Who stretches out the heavens all alone. Who spreads abroad the earth. Read it for yourself. By myself. Here's the question. Hey, Lord, when you created the heavens and the earth, did you have any help? When you created the earth and everything in it, who helped you? 
What's the right answer? Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad? Who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness? Oh, let me tell you about what the future holds for you. I can say with a certain degree of certainty that the sun is going to come up. And then the Lord puts a cloud cover over the front range and goes. <coughs> yeah, it came up, but you can't see it. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. I will raise up her waste places. Remember, look at verse 26 with fresh eyes. Think about what you're reading. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. When Isaiah wrote these words, Jerusalem was inhabited. The cities of Judah were fine. They weren't destroyed. They were built already. And I will raise up her waste places. It was, a, it was a place that was filled with habitation. But God knew that it would be completely destroyed. And that 150 years later, people would be reading these words. And they would see the pain and the devastation and the heartache. And they would need hope. Who says, you shall be built and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Remember who God's servant is? It's the people of Israel. Who else is God's servant? Cyrus. God's servant is, is the person that God is going to use. And here's the astonishing thing. The name is given 200 years before Cyrus is ever born. Okay, here's how I'm going to blow your mind. 200 years from now, a Medo-Persian king named Cyrus, as you're in Babylon, suffering captivity, I'm going to send this king in. He's going to take over the city. And he's going to say to Nehemiah and Ezra, Ezra, Build up that wall. And God is going to make the future unfold and the plans and the purposes come to pass. That's amazing. Here's the point. This is a true prophetic utterance that's given hundreds of years in advance that is historically accurate. It is undisputed. Oh, it's disputed by many people. There are those who would say, oh, this is an interpol interpolation. People just made that up because you see in real life, you can't know the future. But if God is real, he can know the future. So how far into your future can God see? Now, those of you who are somewhat conscious right now. You can remember 2002 and you can remember 2003 and you can remember 2004. Now, if you remember the 60s, you weren't really there. 
who can remember 2010? Who can remember 2020? God remembers only what you have to look forward to because you don't know the future, but God knows your future. And God has stretched out your future and all of the plans and the purposes that he has. He is molding and shaping the circumstances that you find yourself in as he takes you on a road and he places you on that journey. But it never meant to include captivity. You don't have to be in bondage. You can be made free. We are made free by His greatness. We are made free by His promises. But there's one more chapter of freedom left. Now, we're going to have communion. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to have communion. But be, right, I just here's what I want you to do. Just hold the elements so we have an opportunity to take it together, okay? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for every person here. Lord, I pray that they, even though they may not be in a situation right now where there's pain or there's problem, Lord, I pray that that when that dark moment comes, when that desperate moment comes, when that empty moment comes, when they find themselves in a, in a situation where they wonder if you love them or care about them, Lord, I pray that you would bring them back to this passage and you would remind them of the plan that you have for them, that you would remind them of the love that you have for them, of, that you would remind them of the redemption that has been wrought in Jesus. We know that our Redeemer lives. And so, Lord, I pray. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would begin to mold us and shape us in our thinking. That, Lord, you would begin to take hold of us and and remind us that you're willing to change us. That you're willing to replace these wicked and evil thoughts with, with thoughts of love and joy. That you're willing to replace those wicked words with words of hope and health and life. And that you're willing to take a wicked heart and redeem it. Transform it. Make it new. So that we could think different thoughts and speak different words and live as men and women are are intended to live in honesty and humility before the true and the living God. Lord, I pray that people here won't live their lives strange from you. But like Isaiah cried out of old, repent and return to me, for I've redeemed you. There's absolutely no reason why you should stay away from the Lord. There's no reason why you should remain in your sin. There's no reason why you should continue in your wickedness. Return. Return to the Lord. Some of you may need to do exactly that. You may need to return to the Lord tonight. In a renewed sense of hope. In a renewed sense of purity and a renewed sense of opportunity. Take this time, examine your heart. In Jesus' name.